Are we? Yeah, there it is. I'm always. I don't know why. I'm always relieved when the when the volume's working. Well, good uh, evening. So, any of you watch Channel Nine News at five tonight? Well, that's not much for their viewership. I mean, they're running zero percent in Enid, but uh, they did a story on my son's Dale Pirate basketball team on Channel Nine. It was on about five fifteen or something like that. So most of it revolved around the, the Dayton Forsythe, who's a junior. Levi's a sophomore. But he's the, he's, he's the best player on the team, and he's been offered by OU, OSU, some other schools. But uh, So the story was, you know, it was primarily about him, but my son was also in some of the photos, and the, it was about the team, too. Uh, he's, he's kind of the easiest one to, to make the story about. But, it, you know, it was a nice story about small-town Oklahoma that's getting quite a bit of attention for their basketball. I think 350 people live in Dale. I think that's the size of the town. Um, and uh, so it's, it's fun. But anyway, yeah, I don't know if they'll run it on a later. Uh, but here's the best part of that. I actually made it in the story. Yep. The, 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 the sort of the, great, the better story about this group is they've played together since second and third grade. That's when they started playing together. So like the starting five that won the state championship last year have been playing together as like the five through AAU and and through middle school and so they they've had this this relationship. Well, I used to be the assistant coach. <laughs> the coach at Dale has one of his sons as one of the five players, so he's been coaching them, and I was his assistant. Now I didn't do a lot of the coaching. Sometimes he had to like go, go coach the high school, and I would actually coach the games. And I was undefeated. Uh, I'll say. <laughs> In my, in my youth league coaching career in summer league. Um, but they showed a picture of them from the, you know, second and third grade after one of those AAU tournaments, and there I was. And it just shocked me when I saw it, and I almost immediately got a Facebook message from somebody in Ponca City saying, is that you in the picture? And they they got a picture, had captured the picture and it attached it. And, and I said, yep, I made it into the story. So I'm famous tonight. The only problem is nobody watched. <laughs> Had I only known that story was going, I would have, I would have told you. And uh, then you could have been watching for that photo with me in it. Well, let's turn back to Ephesians. And uh, we, we made it through chapter 2 tonight, or last night. So thinking about the, the way the, the letter lays out, you've got the opening in the first two verses. Then you've got that prayer, uh, that praise and prayer section that we did uh, Sunday night and then some of last night, uh, yep, Monday night, and then we finished up last night in chapter 2. Now that moves us into the body. The body is 2 through 6 near the end, 620. So the body starts with theological reflection, and that's where he goes into our predicament, God's grace and the consequences of that, both for individuals and for nations slash the church. So he's torn down the dividing wall. He's made the two into one, and he removed the hostility. He killed the hostility when he was killed, and he moves now directly from that, still in the body, still in the theological reflection, to chapter 3, where he begins, because of this. Or for this reason. Now I want you to look down to 3.14. And I don't know how your translation will handle it. But it should have exactly the same phrase as you have back there at 3.1. Because of this or for this reason. And that's a clue about something that's going on here in chapter 3. At 3.1 Paul begins a prayer for the Ephesians. Now he already had a prayer for them. That was the Sunday morning sermon. Remember that he might uh, enlighten their eyes, he might illuminate the eyes of their heart, that they might know the hope of his calling, they might know that they are his uh, inheritance, and that they, they might know the surpassing greatness of his power. That was a prayer for them. I called it a New Year's prayer. Well, now he sets out to pray again for them. Two prayers, specifically praying for them. And it really gives you some insight into the whole vibe of Ephesians. It all feels like a prayer. 
whether it's expressing praise to God or praying for his church or this church that he helped found, it's like he almost writes this on his knees in, in prayer. And you feel that in what is going to be a prayer for them. But he starts out at 3.1, for this reason, I, Paul, and he's going to say, bow my, bend my knees or bow my knees to pray to the Father. But he, but he takes a bit of a side road. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Do you have a little hyphen or dash there after Gentiles in your translation? That's there that your translator is trying to say, this is where he breaks off the thought. So he mentions that he's a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles, and that causes him to talk about his suffering and his commission. Now, he's going to talk about his suffering. Well, why was he suffering? Because of the calling that God had given him. He's not suffering because he ran from God's calling. He's not suffering because he's outside of God's will. He's suffering because of God's call. The very thing God called him to do is causing him to suffer. Him imprisonment, beatings, shipwreck. It's all the result of him doing what God had called him to do. So when he says the line, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, instead of there saying, I, ba- I bend my knees to the Father, he breaks off the thought after saying, prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. He says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now there's that word administration. He uses it back in chapter 1. Uh, where I, I talked about the administration of the fullness of the times. Look at um, about verse 10. Um, he said, uh, to, uh, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when, he, when, he, when, when, reached the, the, their, when the times reached their fulfillment. When, and the picture is of God administrating the fullness of the times. You remember that last night? And I said that's like... A slave who's elevated in the household to the point of like administrating the affairs, everyday affairs of a, of a household. Well, now Paul returns to that idea. Only now it's not God who is the administrator. Now God has given to Paul the responsibility of administrating a certain part of his plan. And he's going to explain what part of the plan that he's been made a manager or an administrator over. A steward. I don't know if we use, we don't use steward that often to refer to a manager, but we do use the word stewardship. So it's this stewardship, this activity of administrating that God is, is working, but he can pass that off to others to do certain parts of the administration of his plan. And so Paul feels honored that God has chosen him to be an administrator of the plan. And and here it is. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. And when Paul talks about the mystery being made by revelation, I think Paul had visions. He talks about them in like 2 Corinthians um, he, he says, you, want, you think you had visions? Well, well, I've had more visions than all of you. So, so he didn't just have one vision, but he had one vision that changed everything. You, you know what, the, what that vision was? That's the Damascus Road vision. And two things became very clear to him in that Damascus Road experience. The first, and the first thing was, Jesus was, in fact, Messiah, Son of God, raised from the dead. And at that moment, I mean, everything changed. I mean, I think we've all been wrong about things before. But he realized just how wrong he'd been about Jesus, Messiah, and the consequences of that. Not only for himself, but for so many others that he was in the process of persecuting, throwing into prison, harming. I mean, that's quite, quite a moment when you realize you're wrong and others have suffered because you were wrong. And, and you get the feeling from reading Paul in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Timothy, you get the feeling that he has a hard time ever fully getting past that. 
It, it's not just something he, he could forget, that he was a persecutor of the church, that he was so wrong. So that's one thing. And, and I think that's the thing we often think about when we think about the Damascus Road. The blinding light, he, 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 he realizes Jesus, it's Jesus, alive, raised from the dead. But there's another thing that becomes clear to him in that Damascus Road experience that's equally important for him. And that is that he has now been called to be apostle to the Gentiles. That was the administration, the activity of administration, the stewardship that God had given him. That's what he was born now to do. And it became clear to him. And if you read Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, it it, it comes to him. he, He describes it coming in a variety of ways. But in chapter 26, it comes to him. He he says, on the road, he comes to realize that. He also talks about uh, that God revealed it to him when he was praying in the temple. Uh, It also also explains that Ananias tells him that when Ananias has a vision. So in a variety of ways over that three-day, over that weekend, when he sees the blinding light and then he goes to Damascus and he goes to, to the place that God told him to go and Ananias meets him there, he comes to realize what his calling is, what his administration is, the thing that God has given him to do, to administrate. That's the revelation. It's that Damascus Road revelation. He calls it that in Galatians chapter 1. As I've already written briefly. Now, when, when did he write about that revelation? Well, he already used that word back in one ten, But he's also been talking about it last night. Remember the latter part of chapter 2? When he talks about the dividing wall being torn down and the way opening up for, for uh, Gentiles, the hostility to be removed. Well, that relates directly to his calling. That's how he can preach to these Gentiles. Because Jesus died to open up the way for, for Gentiles to join Jews as part of the people of God. And so that opens up what he's called to do. So I think when he says, I wrote to you briefly, he's not talking about some other letter. He's talking about what he's already written earlier in this letter. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now that's the second time he's referred to the apostles and prophets. Back in 2.20, when he's talking about the consequences of God tearing down the wall between Jew and Gentile, notice he says, the church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So he mentions apostles and prophets there. He mentions apostles and prophets here. He's going to mention them again in chapter 4 as part of how God has gifted the church. The Spirit has gifted the church with gifted leadership. And apostles and prophets are two of those. And um, so here, the apostles, that is the twelve... But it's not just the twelve. There is another group that you can add to the twelve, and we see them in the book of Acts, and it's not a large group. But there's a group of church planter missionaries who are called to to be part of the foundational building of the church. Now, they they don't fill the role Jesus rolls. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the main cornerstone, and it's built on him. But the, the apostles and prophets are, are also foundational, building on the chief cornerstone in the early stages of the church. So I may have mentioned this at some point earlier uh, as we were going through this. But I, I just don't, I don't think there are anything quite like apostles in the church today. There's nobody that has the authority that these apostles had in the early church or even these prophets had. I do still think there are prophets, but they don't have the kind of authority that they had in the early church at that foundational moment. I still think there are people who are church uh, planters and missionaries, but they don't have the authority that these leaders in the early church had. So they are the ones who, who came to the realization it was revealed to them, he's one of them, about what God's plan was for Jew and Gentile, for there to be one people of God. This wasn't known in the past. I mean, you can read the Old Testament. And you're not going to find 
this plan clearly stated. You, or maybe you can look back now and see it, but nobody was expecting that there would be one people of God, Jew and Gentile, who would stand on equal ground, side by side, as the people of God. And that, and that, the, that the people of God would no longer be rooted in keeping of the law and circumcision. That it would be about faith in Jesus. That's not clear in the Old Testament. You don't get the clarity of that until you get to the New Testament. And you start seeing through the apostles and the prophets. Now the mystery is being revealed more fully, more clearly. The Old Testament definitely points to it. I mean, you can now look back and see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. And, and look, I don't, I don't know... If in the last 10 years I've said to any student, when, like my biblical interpretation class, if they're saying they see Jesus in some passage in the Old Testament, I don't think I've ever told them, no, I don't think that's right. I'm good. You, you, you snoop out Jesus anywhere you want in the Old Testament. And I'm probably going to say, okay. Because it, it's all about him. He is the thread that unifies all of Scripture. And, and I think we've been too hesitant to see the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. I mean, we, it just has to almost be uh, absolute airtight. You can make a, almost a scientific case that that's pointing to Jesus. I want to be much more willing to see Jesus in the Old Testament and see texts pointing to Jesus. But nobody could have seen this coming. I mean, yeah, I know Abraham, the promise was, your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. I know that he tells Israel, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, says, you're to be a light to the Gentiles. I know that Isaiah says the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But it's very difficult to get from that to this one people of God, Jew and Gentile, based purely in faith in Jesus. So Paul says, by God's grace, I was given this administration of this mystery that had not been made known. Not to this degree, not this fully, until recent times to these holy apostles and prophets of which he is one. And then he says uh, in verse 6, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs together with Israel, fellow members of the one body, and fellow partakers of in the promise in Christ Jesus, or of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now that's it. That, that Jew and Gentile are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow sharers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now that ought to make us feel pretty good tonight. Us Gentiles sitting here, knowing that we've been made fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers in the promise, promises of God. We weren't heirs ethnically to the covenants of promise the promise to abraham the 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 covenant with uh, moses the promise to david the, of the davidic you know one who will sit on david's thought we we weren't ethnically heirs to all of that and it wasn't clear that that was going to ultimately relate to us so clearly but now paul says it's been revealed and it's good news for gentiles so, and then verse 7 brings this to an end where Paul's talking about his commission. I became a minister or servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Now, that's it. He is a minister of this. That's, his, that's what the role he'd been given. So, that's his commission. Now, look, look at how he talks about his unworthiness to do what God had called him to do in being apostle to the Gentiles. He says in verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. One, to preach to the Gentiles the untraceable riches of Christ. And two, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. That's that word again. The activity of administrating this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. 
Now, let's go back to this line. I'm, he says, I'm, I'm least of the saints. Does that remind you of something Paul says elsewhere? In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 9, and 10, he's talking about the, the faith that was passed on to him that is basically, it's, it's the way we summarize the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, he was buried, on the third day he raised according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to many. And, and Paul's explaining who all he appeared to, and, and then he appeared to 500. And then last of all, as one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me. That'd be the Damascus Road experience. And, um, and, and he says, based on that, that he's least of the apostles. Like he was the last, he feels like he came along at the end. He was, he was least of the apostles. Well, now it's an even st- more staggering statement. He's not saying I'm least of the apostles, which was a pretty small group. He says, I'm the least of all the saints. He's just expressing his unworthiness to do the thing, this thing that God had given him to do. And of course, what would make him feel that unworthiness? Because he'd been a persecutor of the church. He just feels so unworthy. One, to preach to the Gentiles the untraceable riches of Christ. Paul, on occasion, will just make up a word, as far as we know. We can't find it anywhere else in Greek literature. This is one of those words. It's a compound word, but right in the heart of it is a word for footprint. And he creates, he puts the, the neg- the, the, an alpha in front of a word, can negate it. And it's a, more, it's a more complex word than that. But essentially he says that these riches of Christ that God has given him the administration to preach is untrackable, untraceable. And the picture is like, you know, if you're out hunting something and, and, and you see the footprints. And so once you find the footprints of something, you can track it. You're able to track it at that point. But these riches of Christ, he says, are untraceable, untrackable. He, he could have never imagined it. He couldn't have fathomed it. It's, it's beyond his ability to understand. He couldn't find it by reason. It, it's, it's this that was revealed to him. Uh, this mystery was by revelation. It's, it's the unsearchable, untraceable, untrackable riches. That's what he'd been given the administration to proclaim. It's, it's just a beautiful word. And um, he uses a similar word in Romans 11, uh, but let's just keep going. I don't want to get too distracted. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the many-sided, here's another word. It's kind of hard to translate into English. Many-sided, beautifully complex. I think the NIV says manifold. But honestly, I think manifold, I think of a part on a car. Uh, like it's related to the exhaust system. Uh, I don't think I use manifold very often in everyday speech. But it's, it's, and it, it's a word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that describes Joseph's coat of many colors. So it's something that has many colors, many-sided, nuanced. Uh, that's the way he wants to describe um, this, the wisdom of God in, in revealing this mystery. Uh, it's, it's beautifully com- this beautifully complex wisdom of God. Should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. So here is, a, here is another role that the church plays in God's administration of things. We reveal to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies that these typically are bad things. That refers to the powers that are set against God's purposes. The church reveals to the rulers and to the powers God's beautifully complex wisdom. Now you think about how the church... as it functions as God has designed it to be, is a testimony to the beautifully complex grace of God, the riches of His grace, that He can bring people that are so different together 
Now, you might say, well, we're a whole lot alike. But when you get right down to it, even in a church like this, there's a lot of differences between people. Of course, you've got socioeconomic differences. You've got gender difference. Uh, you've got political differences. You know, I'm not going to have a show of hands who's registered Republican, who's registered Democrat, who's registered Independent. But I think you probably know not everybody here agrees on all things political. And, and you might assume, I think we sort of assume everybody thinks the same way we do, until you get in a small group with somebody, and then you say something political that they don't agree with. And they may handle it in different ways, but most churches I've been in, they have a way to let you know they don't agree with you on that. But we, we can be, and, and everybody in Enid's not from Enid. I mean, there are people who've moved here from different parts of the country. Not everybody thinks differently. We do different things in, with the, for vocation, calling, and life. And yet God can bring people together. And they can function as brothers and sisters, as a family. And as we do, we are a testimony to this beautifully complex, many-sided um, riches of God's grace. It, it's, it's, the church has the power to do that. Uh, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we have access to God with boldness and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Now that's where he brings this to an end. So here he's been talking about his commission, his unworthiness for it, and he ends by saying to them, now I don't want you to be discouraged because of my suffering. Remember he started this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. So now as he brings this idea to a conclusion about his calling and this administration that God had given him, he returns to this idea of he's a prisoner, he's suffering. Now, now he, he doesn't say anything quite like this in another letter. I don't want you to be discouraged because of my imprisonment. Now, I've already raised this issue uh, at least one time, but... If you look at the reason why he got arrested, if we, if we take that he, the assumption that he's writing this as a result of that arrest that happened in Jerusalem in uh, Acts 21, and, and that he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years, and then he's imprisoned in Rome, and he writes this during that Roman imprisonment. So he's been in prison for three or four years. And the reason he was arrested was because of an accusation involving Trophimus the Ephesian. And I can see why, if any church would sort of blame themselves for Paul's imprisonment, it might be the church where Trophimus came from. And that's Acts twenty one twenty nine. 29 if you want to see that line, Trophimus the Ephesian, where he mentions that. So that brings that section to a conclusion. That's where he started... He was going to pray a prayer for them, and then he, 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 he got distracted a bit. Now, I'll take it as part of the inspiration. I don't, think, I don't think he got distracted and the Spirit sort of waiting on him to finish up this thought. It's part of the inspiration of it. But it looks to us like he sort of took a diversion from where he started. So he's talked about his commission. He's talked about his unworthiness for it. And now he gets to the prayer at verse 14. So verses 14 through 21 is the second prayer for the Ephesians. And now back to, now, for this reason or because of this. I kneel or I bend my knee before the Father from whom every nation or family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, there's that word riches again, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner man or inner person or inner being. So this prayer has three requests, much like the prayer that we did the sermon on Sunday morning. The first request is that, that they would have the strength of Christ dwelling in them, within them. And still part of that same request, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
So it's sort of a twofold that the strength of Christ might dwell in, within their inner person, and that the strength of God might dwell in the inner person, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You see the parallelism there, the inner person, the heart, the strength of uh, the strength. Um, How does he say it here? That, that uh, you may strengthen you with power in your inner person, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So the inner person and heart is referring to the same part of a human person. That spiritual, emotional, inner part of a person that can't be touched by death or disease or anything. That's, that's the eternal part. This body is not. I mean, obviously. When you get to, you know, 57, 58, I mean, I got these glasses I have to wear. And somebody, uh, well, was that one of you all mentioned my hair falling out? I think it might have been one of you all. Uh, if, not, if not, it was somebody last week where I was teaching. But, um, but you know, there, I mean, you know, you can see over the, I don't know, 14 or 15 years. You look at a picture of me when I first started coming here, back when Keith was the pastor. And that look at me today, you say, man, he's really aging. He's rotting right before our eyes. You know, aging is a nice way to say it, but we're really just rotting. Um, but, the, but the inner person can't be touched by, and, and I, I still remember, you know, I'm a sports person, and Jim Valvano was a coach in North Carolina State, won a very unlikely national championship coaching North Carolina State in 1983, the year I graduated from high school. And his team in that NCAA tournament I mean, they hadn't even been that good all season. They played in a very tough conference, Michael Jordan's North Carolina team and lots of great teams. But they ended up making the tournament, and then every game was like it was over. They were beat, and they found a way to come from behind, and they'd foul, and the other team would miss free throws, and they'd make shots. They ended up making it to the national championship game against the Houston Cougars. And Houston had lost like one game all season, and they were like all these NBA players, and they were dunking it. I mean, they, they were a real powerhouse team. So, I mean, he made a joke out of it. We might, we might, there wasn't a shot clock then. We might not shoot the ball until Tuesday morning or that kind of thing. And the game gets going, and it's a close game, and it comes right to the very end of the game. And this, this guard, Derek Wittenberg, chucks up a, they're down like one. He chucks up a long shot, and it falls short, but one of the North Carolina State players just grabs up, dunks it, and that's it. And the enduring image of that is Jim Valvano running around the court trying to find somebody to hug because uh, all his players were hugging. There was nobody for him to hug, and he's just running around on the court. So, And he was quite a personality. He just was a funny personality. I mean, he told funny stories. You know, He, he, he said he was at Kansas one time playing against Kansas, and so there was some sort of stoppage, and the Kansas band was playing the Kansas fight song, and the referee was tapping along, like knew the beat, and he said, I knew it was done. <laughs> like he wasn't going to get a call that night. So it's just funny stories. But very beloved sort of national figure, and uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was clear it wasn't going well, and he could barely make it to the ESPN Awards uh, show on this particular night when they were giving him this award for cancer, fighting cancer. And, um, and he, he gives his speech, and nobody knew that he could just barely, they barely got him there, and he had the energy to get up there. But once he got going, and, and there's a line in there that he says something like, cancer uh, cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my body, it cannot touch my soul. Um, well, it could touch his body, but it can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, it can't touch my soul. But what, I mean, he wasn't a very good theologian. But in that moment, in a very famous speech, he was really saying something rather profound. That there is this inner person you might refer to as the heart or the soul that, that can't be touched in the same way the body can, this spiritual part of a person. And so here he's praying that you might be strengthened in your inner person and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And it's just talking about being filled in this inner person, the heart. 
And uh, so, you know, I remember in, I, got, I became a believer in 1975, First Baptist Church, Millsboro, Kentucky. And I don't remember exactly. I mean, that's been a few years ago, like 47, something like that. Uh, I don't remember what prayer I prayed, but I do remember praying a prayer. And I would put big dollars on, I probably asked Jesus to come into my heart. Because that's, everywhere I was, heard somebody pray, uh, you know, we used to call it the sinner's prayer. Uh, it was like in, asking Jesus to come into your heart. And, and I know some people have quibbled with that in more recent days. That, well, that's a bad image. Jesus doesn't, you know, really come to take up residence in this bloody muscle that pumps in your chest. And I get that. But Paul's not afraid to use the image of Jesus in your heart. He prays for them that Christ may dwell in your heart. So if Paul's going to do it, I'm okay with it. So uh, I may just keep that as part of my sinner's prayer when I pray it with people. Um, and, and then he says, with the result that, you, that you're rooted and established in love and that, that you might have power together with all the Lord's saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. So here's the second request, you know, that, that Christ may dwell in your heart, that the power of God might be part of your inner person. That was one. Two is that the Father might make known the depths of his love. The height, the width, the depth of his love. What's all that language about? It's a way of saying that you might realize that God's love has no bounds. It's boundless. And it's, it's, a, it's really a beautiful way to say that. And early church fathers, there's one particular uh, origin, and some other church fathers picked up on this image, but that the cross actually displays this. That through the cross, Jesus ascends into the heavens. Through the cross, he descends to the lower regions. He's going to make that image that in chapter 4. That if he ascended, he had to descend. And I think that's a reference to the incarnation. And, and then the, gospels, the, the cross spreads to the ends of the earth. Height, depth, ends of the earth. It's a cross. You know, the, the, the cross actually displays this height and depth and width uh, of the love of God. Knowledge has its limits, but love does not, not the love of God. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God, which is um, that you might be filled to the fullest with God's presence and God's power. And that's, uh, that's the third request, that the Father would fill them with his fullness. So that's the prayer, that, that the power of God, that, that Christ may dwell in their hearts, that the Father would make known to them the depths of his love, and that the Father would fill them with God's fullness. And then we get a nice doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, beyond measure, more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So I love these little doxologies, these little ways of offering praise to God. It's a nice way to end a prayer. It's a nice way to end a service. Um, To him who is able to do, and he piles them up here too. He says, beyond measure uh, and and in a way that surpasses understanding. It's hard to even capture it well. Immeasurably is one way, but it's beyond measure. Um, More than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is worked within, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ. Now, that's, that's a beautiful image because who are we? We're the body. Who is Christ? He's the head of the body. So you got head and body brought together there. 
And the glory of God is revealed through the, the body and head together. And I love that image that, that may, may God's glory be revealed in the church. Again, it's, it's elevating the church to this place where God's glory can be seen, be revealed in the church. Just as he earlier said that the church reveals to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies God's many-sided wisdom. Here he comes back to that same idea. So now that brings us to the end of the theological reflection. Now at chapter 4, we make a transition. Let me see if I've got my... I know I can find one, but uh, I've got mine here. So if you've got your outline there, turn the first page, turn the second page. Uh, it's front, yours is front and back, isn't it? Yeah. So if you look to... You had the, the page that says body at the top, theological reflection, 2, 1 through 3, 21. We've been working through that. If you turn the, to the back of that page, Roman numeral 3, prayer, that's what we just covered. See A, prayer for God's love and power, that the Father would strengthen them, that the Father would make known to them the depth of His love, that the Father would fill them with God's fullness. That's what we just covered. Then the doxology. Now you'll notice bolded and moved to the center there, there, exhortation. This is the second major part of the body. And it's going to go from here, 4, 1, 2, 6, through 6, 20. Now here's what I want you to pay attention to. Look at the five exhortations that follow. Exhortation to walk in unity. Exhortation to walk in the new identity. Exhortation to walk in love. Exhortation to walk in the light. Exhortation to walk in wisdom. You see those five? Paul has structured this so that you can't miss his five exhortations because they're all built around two words, therefore, walk. Now, sometimes he makes it a little more complex. He'll put some words between therefore and walk, but it's clear therefore and walk is the clue to where he transitions from one idea to the next. So do you know what an exhortation is? It is a call to live in a certain way, to be exhorted to do something, to be encouraged, to be instructed. Essentially, he's saying, walk this way. Sounds like an Aerosmith song. Uh, walk, some of you thought that, yeah. I'm, I'm a music person. I, as I probably sang several songs here to you over the years, I don't sing well at all, but I just can't resist it sometimes. But yeah, I think of a lot of country music rock classic rock contemporary stuff i got all these songs in my head but yeah walk this way is an exhortation to live a certain way walk is a metaphor for live we talk about life being a journey well how do you how do you how do you walk this journey how do you how do you live so let me see if i can help you and different translations are going to handle it a different way but i just want to assure you therefore it's a little Greek word, un, and then walk, some version of the Greek word for walking, peripateo, is in every one of these sections, and it marks it off. So let's find it first at 4.1. This is the section, walk in unity. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Okay, you see that? I'm just curious, as you look at your translation there. Do you have therefore? Now, some of you will have something else because they just choose to translate that word differently. It's fine, but I just want to make sure you see it at every one of these pivotal turning points. So it's here at four one. therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received. And he goes on uh, for 16 verses to explain what he means here. And the call here is to walk in unity. Now look at 4.17. Here's the second exhortation section. Therefore, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Do you see therefore here at verse 17? Do you see a word for walk? Do you, maybe you, your translation has live. Okay. 
it, that's, that's that word walk, then they're just translating it live, and that's fine. That reflects the meaning, but I just want you to know, therefore in walk is found here at verse 17. So that marks a new section. So he's exhorting them now to walk in their new identity. They're, a, they're supposed to be a new cre- creation, a new creature. That's what God, by His grace, has done for them. Now, walk like that. All right, look down at 5.1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and, and walk in the way of love. So, guess what? Here's an exhortation to walk in love. And that's a pretty short section, 5, 1 through 5. Uh, look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Or live as children of light. But you see it there? So this is now a, a new section. Walk in the light. Walk as children of light. And then that's, that one's pretty short. That just goes to ver, through verse, verses 6 through 14. Then look at verse 15. So we're now at 515. Be, be very careful, therefore, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So here's an exhortation to walk in wisdom. So that's the five. Now when he gets to, and, and that one's going to go on a while, that goes all the way to six, nine. When he gets to putting on the armor of God, that's like an exhortation, but it's, it doesn't follow the same format. And I'll tell you why I think that is tomorrow night. But you'll just have to wait. So now let's look at the first exhortation here, the walk in unity. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he starts out by exhorting them, urging them to display Christian virtues And those virtues will create unity. I mean, look at them. Humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. These are the kinds of Christian virtues that create unity among a church. If you have a church comprised of people with those Christian virtues, there's going to be a lot of peace and unity in that church. Think of the opposite of those. People who are arrogant who are not very gentle towards one another, who are not patient with one another, who don't, aren't willing to bear with those that grate them the wrong way or that they disagree with. How long till there's going to be division in that church if that's what characterizes the members of that congregation? So it's an exhortation to... You're, you're now, you've now been brought into this people of God. You're part of the church, this glorious church. You have, you have the ability to show forth the glory of God. Now, live like that. And, and that would include displaying these virtues which promote unity. So there's the, here are the virtues you need. But then he provides a theological basis for the unity of the church. And there's seven of these. There is one body. Now, he's talking about the church which is the body of Christ. He's already made that point several times. There is one church. Now, Paul, almost always, when he talks about church, he's talking about a local congregation. He planted local congregations. He, he pastored local congregations. And he wrote letters to local congregations in Corinth and Thessalonica and Ephesus and you, you know, all of Galatia, that, that region. He wrote letters to specific local churches and and i think that's how he thinks primarily but occasionally he thinks broader than just a local congregation and he thinks of the church universal and i think he does that here when he says there is one body there is one church 
and it's comprised of all the people who are part of the people of God. There's one body. There is one spirit, and it should be capitalized because I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, Just as you were called to one hope, the hope of your calling, the blessed hope, your Christian hope, our hope is in, in one reality, that there is one God and we are his people. And he is in control of not only the world, but our lives. One hope with which you were called. One Lord. He likes the word kurios. That's the word for Lord. It appears 23 times in Ephesians. Now, a lot of people in the Roman Empire thought Caesar was Lord. That was part of the proclamation that people, if you were patriotic in the Roman Empire, you, you didn't have to just salute the flag. You had to salute the emperor and see him as Lord. And, of course, the Christians couldn't do that because they didn't believe Caesar was Lord. They believed Jesus was Lord. There was one Lord and one faith. And, and faith, I think, back in the opening of this, when he, or in the prayer from Sunday morning when he talked about their faith and their love, I think their faith was their trust in Jesus. But, but faith, that word faith, can also be a reference to a, to a body of doctrine. Like when he says the faith that has been handed on by the apostles. It, it's what we believe. And I think here he probably has in mind not our trust, but our body of doctrine. That there is a core of doctrine that, that is necessary in order to be not only be part of the church, but for there to be unity in the church. And, and that, you know, we don't have time to talk about what's in that core, but I'd start with there is one God uh, who uh, is Trinity. Three persons, yet one God. And if you reject this Trinitarian God, it, it, in, in my view, it's not possible to be Christian. You know, almost everybody will say they believe in God. You, you, it's hard to find people out there who won't affirm some sort of f- belief in God. It's when you follow up, well, what God do you believe in? Explain to me your God, this God you say you believe in. If, if it's not this Trinitarian God who is one and yet Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God, if, if it's a rejection of that God, it's not Christian. The, the nature of Jesus as fully God and fully man. To not believe that, to reject the true full humanity of Jesus or the full deity of Jesus. Either one is a rejection of the Christian faith. And, and, and there might be some more. Now, everything's not in the core. We, there are lots of things we can disagree on. But there's got to be a core of beliefs that makes the church the church. Or we end up not being any different from the Lions Club or the, you know, whatever in the community, other groups that meet together and try to do good things in the community. There has to be a body of doctrine that we affirm. And if you reject that doctrine, you're not part of the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I think that's the sixth one. And I think he's referring probably here to water baptism. And one God and Father of all. And that's the last one. And then he adds this nice line, who is over all and through all and in all. And what a beautiful, prepositional phrases are, are not typically something we, we care much about, though, uh, us English speakers. I mean, I, I remember trying to help both my sons figure out what prepositions are and what prepositional phrases are, and it, it's not a lot of fun. But man, when Paul uses prepositional phrases, you need to lock in because they often reveal really weighty things. And here when he says there's one God the Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Man, he says a lot about God the Father in those three statements. Who is over all, that speaks of God's sovereignty over all. He has already mentioned he's the one who created everything that is. So we've got this God who is over all, 
And through all is usually a reference to God's creative work. All things come into being through him. So just that little prepositional phase, through him, uh, over, uh, let's go back to it. Uh, overall and through all. That preposition that he uses there is almost always a reference to creation. So we've got this God who is over all and who's the creator of all. Boy, that sounds like a God that's far removed from us. You know, the kind of God, you know how big the universe is? And he made that? You know how small we are in the universe? I mean, we're small, you know, here in Enid. Us. Just think about the size of, I don't know, what Garfield County. But you think about the universe. I mean, it's mind-blowing to think how big it is. And and this God who's overall made all that. That would sound like an unapproachable kind of being. And yet, what's the last one? And in all. We are in him. He is in us. That in Christ language that he uses so often. Sometimes Paul says we are in God, but it shows his nearness to us. That this God who is so grand and so great and so transcendent is also near to us. He knows us by name. You can't get closer than in all. And um, I think sometimes we elevate like celebrities or sports figures to almost this unapproachable status you know I I remember uh, my son Luke I don't think uh, Levi wasn't born yet so Luke was less he was under five we had to go to Norman for some reason and we were eating in a little deli there uh, Cherry Hill Subs I think was the name of it but it was a popular place not far from the university there in Norman and um, and I liked the food there I actually saw Toby Keith there one time huh celebrity and uh but this was even bigger for me luke and i are sitting there and i and i realize that barry switzer is in the the deli he's eating with what uh, what i assumed was his daughter and his grandkids and uh you know barry switzer now i'm a kentuckian but i was always kind of interested in oklahoma and you know i thought barry and i was in dallas when he came to coach the Cowboys, and that didn't go that great, but he, I think he did win a Super Bowl there. But anyway, he's a, he's a legend around these parts, right? At least south of here he is. I don't know, but we're close to OSU up here, but, you know, this is Barry King, you know? So I tell Luke, that's Barry Switzer. Luke had no clue who Barry Switzer was, so I tried to tell him how he's, you know, he's a legend around here, and I said, and we were sitting to where we, we could kind of see uh, Switzer and some of the other people there. I said, I wonder if anybody's going to go over to his table and talk to him or ask for his autograph or anything like that. So we're eating and watching, and nobody's going over to his table. And, and there was an uh, older couple, I mean, probably 60s, not that old, still young, um, <laughs> older than me at the time, though, sitting in our vision, and I could see them looking over in that direction, and, 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 and I hadn't said anything, but he stood up, and I said to Luke, uh-oh, this guy's going to go over there and talk to him. He's going to ask for autograph or picture or something. And the guy gets up, walks right by Switzer to our table, and he says, are you Dr. Kelly? <laughs> and the guy just happened to go to Bethel Baptist there in Norman where I'd done some stuff and walked right by Switzer to me. And man, I, you can't, I, I bet I was floating. I, I was, uh, I'm sitting there and Luke's looking at me like, you're, you're more famous than Switzer. I, I, he didn't say that. I imagined he was thinking that, but I mean, come on. Barry Switzer, I mean, he had a pretty good run here in Oklahoma, but He's not king. I mean, even if you're an OU fan. Some of you OSU people are like, yeah, he's not king. But, I mean, even then we're a little hesitant. We're not sure we should, because there's, there's that, they seem like they're almost different than us, because they're celebrity. Nah. This God, who's over all, through all, and in all, 
we have access to that God. It, it's quite an amazing thing. Well, I'll pause there, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, pick it back up tomorrow night, and we'll, we'll be able to finish it out through some of these other exhortations. Um, so this is Tuesday night, so we got one more night, and the time changes tomorrow night, doesn't it, Jonathan? Six o'clock, and will it be upstairs? We're we going to do it down here. Yeah, I, I like it better down here, especially the night services. So six o'clock, and at five, right? It's like talk, and it's like taco salad, I think. And I'm, I hear that that's like a popular taco salad is something people like. Am I right about that, Paul? Is that a good one? I mean, the pressure's on you, you got to say, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so 5 o'clock is uh, the taco salad, and 6 o'clock we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get back to, to uh, Ephesians. So, Jonathan, if we're done, I'll dismiss us in prayer. All right? So let me ask a blessing on you. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the good shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus our Lord, through the blood of the eternal covenant, May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. I'll see you tomorrow night.